Henry Junod, The Life of a South African Tribe. And if you will look at this book, I'm calling it one book, even though there are two volumes, because it's one argument. And the only reason it's not one book is that there's too many pages. It's really one book, though. The Life of a South African Tribe. This is a book that does not quote the Bible. This is a book written about a hundred years ago. This is a book that is just going to tell us about the Tsonga people. And I think you may go away saying, this book opened your eyes and made you able to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I prove that? Let me try to do it. And I'm going to start with the Bible. This is not in the book, but it should be. If I wrote this book, I would have put this verse at the beginning. Open your Bible to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. And does anyone know what verse in 1 Peter chapter 1? 1 Peter 1 and verse 18. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. Now here's the point. From your futile lifestyle. Futile, vain, worthless, empty lifestyle that you received by tradition from your forefathers or from your ancestors. You were redeemed not from your You were redeemed not by gold and silver from your foolish ways, your useless way of life. And where did you get that useless way of life from? From your traditions and from your fathers. Tonight I want to discuss 1,200 pages of your old lifestyle. And if you say, I'm not a Tsonga, I'm not a Shangan, because you're not, you're not, then I want to tell you, there is amazing similarity between the Tsonga customs and traditions and the Venda customs and traditions. And I know because I have talked to Venda people and I have read books about Venda customs and cultures. And I know a little bit about Shona. But what I do know about Shona, it's very similar to Venda and very similar to Zulu and Kosa and Kiswahili. At least as far as the customs, there are some differences, but I'm going to say they're, they're superficial 
much of what you're going to hear tonight, you're going to say, we have something just like that in Sutu. We have something very much like that in Kosa or Shona or Chichewa. And then the third point, these are all points before we get even in. I have wondered for a long time, should we study false religion? Is it profitable to study false religion? And my answer is yes, it is profitable to study false religion because many people, when they believe on Jesus, they must first repent, but they are unable to repent if they don't understand exactly from what they are repenting. If they don't really understand what they're turning from, then they don't exactly understand what they are turning to. I think that is one reason that many, many missionaries have said when they go to Brazil or Indonesia or when they go to Africa, they will say, People are very quick to become Christians, but they are very slow to become disciples of Jesus. And I have read books and talked to many missionaries who say, people will very quickly say they're going to become a Christian, but they don't become a disciple because they're really not willing to leave their polygamy or their fear of the spirits or their witchcraft or any number of other traditional practices. And Junod is going to help us tonight to do that. So let's begin right here at the top. Who's the author? Henry Junod. He is a Swiss native. A Presbyterian from Switzerland. He arrived here when he was 26 years old in 1889. The missionaries arrived in Valdesia in 1875. So he came here 14 years after the missionaries started. It would be like if someone else came to join me now. I've been here for about 16 years. What if someone came to join me now? That's what this man was after he'd been there for a number of years. He published this book in 1912. And you can get this book on your phone for free. In fact, I have it on my computer. If you just plug your phone into my computer, I can put it on your phone in two minutes. Or you can get it on your computer or your laptop or whatever. Or you can pay a lot of money to buy the real books. This book was published in 1912. He was 49 years old. And then he published the second edition in 1926. Why do you do a second edition of books? Because you've learned more and you want to add to it. So 14 years later, he added to the book. He's the son of a conservative Calvinistic pastor in Switzerland. But I don't think he was conservative himself. I think he fell away from his father's faith. The men around him described him as kind and courageous. And he put this book together... (coughs) In, in volume one, 
he explains how he came to his conclusions. And he shows the books that he read. Now, if you're going to write a book, you want to read books. But he, what books can he read? He doesn't have people he can read. So here are the people that he spoke to. He spoke to this guy, Spoon. He spoke to this guy, Mankelu. He spoke to that guy, Tobani. He had seven chief informants. And they're all, he explains them all right in here at the beginning of the book. So you'll know who he talked to. One of them was a Sangoma. All of them were old or older. And he tried to find the oldest people he could to get the information from them. So what he's recording is a little bit what he saw, but mostly what the Tsonga people told him. So if we read something and you say, wow, I don't know about that, you're going to have to take it up with Kokwana. Because mostly what's recorded is what he got from the different people that he was talking to. And he says at the very beginning, he learned a very important skill. And I, as soon as I read this, I underlined it because I have tried to learn that skill as well. Here's the skill. Asking questions without implying the answer that you want them to say. Like this. If I say, who here is a Christian? Who here is a Christian? What answer do I want to hear? I am a Christian. Okay? Well, but you've got to ask the question so that, because the people are all going to tell you what you want to hear. Right? So you have to learn how to ask the question so that you won't force them to give the answer. For example, I never ask the question, who is a Christian? Instead, I say something like this. Look at the map of the road to heaven. Where do you think you are? Do you think you're, at, do you think you're really uh, far along the map and persevering? Do you think you're right back at the narrow gate? Or do you think you're still considering the narrow gate? And you still need some time. Where do you think you're at? Are you at position one? Are you still considering? Are you at position two? You're right at the gate. Or are you at position three where you've come through the gate and you're very, you've done this for a long time that you have really put your roots down deep? Which position are you in? Now see, in a question like that, people would be free to answer one or two or without being pushed in the corner Oh, I've got to make him happy. So he did that very well, and he has a lot of information. So I've taken enough time. Let's get into it right here. Here it is. This book is about 20 chapters long. I say about because, first of all, he put the table of contents at the end of the book. (laughs) At the very end is this table of contents. And the table of contents is seven pages long. And the table of contents, there's one table of contents for volume two and one for volume one. I really want one table of contents for both volumes. I want at the beginning of this book so I can see straight across where. And he breaks it up awkwardly and he puts appendices in the middle and then he puts the conclusion and then other chapters. Okay, I would change a few things with order. 
He has about 20 chapters. So starting from number two in the notes are the chapters. Now I combined some of them, but here they are in general. Let's, let's run through these. <clears throat> number one, the, um, it's chapter two in your notes there, sorry. But it's chapter one in the book. Life of a man. Turn over to page 20. And what's number three? Yeah, the average life of a woman. Then what's number four? <clears throat> Family and then village and clan. Chief, court. What's number seven? The army. Number eight is agriculture. What's number nine? Industry. Industry then intellect. Then folklore. That's like the stories. Then there's music. Oh, his section on music is so interesting. <clears throat> Then there's the religion. Numbers 13 to 17 are all the religion. And that's really where I want to spend the most time tonight. Numbers 13 to 17. So let's see if we can uh, get through this. Here we go. Let's go back to number two. Life of man. Most of these are quotes right from the book. The first human beings emerged from reeds. Now, he's not saying that's the truth. He's saying that's what the Tsongas told him. Okay? What do the Shonas say? Where did the first people come from? You don't know? Well, in the book I read on the Vendas, the Vendas said the same thing. The first people came from a reed. So maybe long ago when when maybe everyone was coming, north, coming south still, maybe many of the tribes had that idea that somewhere out there in the, in the swamp, the first people came up. I'm not sure. But the song is told, as you know, the first people emerged from reeds. And then do you see at the end of that sentence, there's a letter I and 21. That means volume one, page 21. So the letter I means volume, and the letter II means volume two. There you go. Letter B, at birth, the midwives often hurt the mother severely. The midwives think that they must be very rough and have no pity at all on the poor woman. That's the birth. I've been told that in the hospitals, it is common for nurses not to show kindness or compassion to the women when they have babies. One of our dear friends, Manansako, said that when she gave birth to her second son, the nurses were very harsh with her, as if she was a, a bad person. And she thought, what did I do? Why are they being this way? Now, let her see. The son of the Mabota chief was named Nuanim. A girl's name in order to deceive the malevolent powers which had killed his brothers and sisters. So this chief's brothers and sisters, they had died. And so the mother thought, the father thought, it's the spirits that killed them. Let's give him a girl's name. And then they'll think, oh, he's a little girl. And they'll keep him alive. Letter D, as regards the birth of twins... In old times, one of the children was what? Do we do that today? 
These are the foolish ways of life that we received from who? From our forefathers. This is the pattern that Satan wants to put in every culture of the world. He wants everyone to kill their children. Letter E. If the mother dies during the nursing period, the little one is almost sure to follow her. Page 49. Right after there, on that same section, he describes that many Tsongas believed that babies, because they were so small, would float in water. So they had the belief that no baby could ever drown. A number of babies died that way because when the mother would cross a river in the rains, the people would say to her, let the baby float. She'll float to the shore and you can walk across. And many babies died because they had the belief that the babies would float and stay alive. Again, these are not Junod's thoughts. He's recording these from people who saw this with their own eyes. Letter F, before the cotton string is tied around the baby's waist, he was hardly considered as a human being. He was Shiloh, Kuna, Chitu. But once they tie that string, why is it that they tie the string? Have, have you seen that? Do they tie the string in Shona culture? Do they tie the string in Venda culture? Is it common for babies to have a string tied around their waist? Do you see there's a lot of similarity. Why is that done? It's to protect them. We've got to protect them. In fact, he describes the cotton string at length. In the old days, they would take this string and they would take waste from the baby and waste from the mother, like from the toilet waste. They would rub it into the string and wrap that soiled string around the baby, thinking that that would somehow keep the baby safe from spirits. Letter G. The very day of his weaning, that means the last day that he nurses from his mother, the child must leave the village of his parents and go to stay with his grandparents. Why? Why would you do that? The infant, letter H, Shipucha, that's from the Ronga dialect in Mozambique, or Shitangi, is on the way to become a boy, a Mufana. During the first years of this period, which extends from the third to the fourteenth year, he stays with his grandparents. He sometimes commits bad actions, but the father does not bother much with these little boys. In fact, he writes it in two places in the book. He writes, the father does not do anything with the children. Two times in two different chapters, he writes, the father does not do much. That is, that is something foolish and useless that we received from our and we need to throw it away it's not a profitable way to live letter i hunger is the constant companion of these boys who do not get enough to eat at home he describes on pages 60 to 65 what boys commonly do when they're three years old to 14 they would herd the goats 
And while they're herding the goats and maybe the sheep, if you have any, maybe the cows, while they're herding the animals, they would be hungry and so looking for food. They would look for fruit if they could find it. If it was near the time of harvesting, they would go to where the women were plowing and they would send some boys over here to distract and then the rest of the boys would come in and steal. The younger boys, five and six and seven, would be beaten by the older boys if they got caught. Letter J. During circumcision, often the boy falls down unconscious. He means after the boy was beaten and then circumcised. The boy would fall down unconscious. They then throw a jar of cold water over him. Formerly, they did not anoint the sore with medication. The boys used to drink a decoction, that's a drink, which is said to stop hemorrhage, that's bleeding. Now they use what? Lloyd, would you like to send Alex there? At 13 years old to be cut. And if they cut wrong, he's going to bleed. And they stop the blood by putting a petroleum product. I mean, would would you put petrol on your young child to heal them? In fact, let me just read to you a section from there. Because there's a, a number of interesting things that I didn't put in the notes here. And some pictures I'll share with you. He says that there are six kinds of pain that they experience. Let me see if I can find this. There are six main kinds of pain. Beating, cold, thirst, unsavory food, punishment, and death at the circumcision schools. Number one, blows. As soon as they arrived, the older boys would stand on one side and uh, they would form a hallway. And the younger boys would have to run through the middle and the older boys would punch them and hit them. Once they got inside, there was a large rock in the center. And I'll show you a map of it. This is a map of the circumcision school. And right in the middle is a rock. It's called the elephant. And all the boys have to sit around there. The younger boys are on the inside. The older boys on the outside to keep the younger boys from running away. And there's a rock. They would send all these boys into that hut so they can't see. And they bring one boy out at a time, put them on the rock. And then when the boy's looking this way, someone would come from behind and hit him with a rod. When the boy turns around to see who hit him, they would grab him and cut him. The boys were not allowed to wear anything. So all the boys here who have not been circumcised have to stay for six weeks without any clothing. Here they are again. They had to put white clan themselves in the morning to show that they are fresh and new. But by the night, they would take it off to show that they're becoming men. But every morning, they have to do that. Look at this. Here's a crocodile that was being killed for an initiation rite. And... Here's boys of differing ages... Who have just gone through the circumcision 
The first trial is the pain of the beating. The second trial is the cold. They're not allowed to wear clothes for the six weeks they're there. Even at night. No blankets allowed. During July. They have to sleep on the ground. It's a vain lifestyle, a foolish way to live. This is not what you want to do with your child. But this is what has happened historically. If a boy told his mother or his aunt or his sister anything that happened in the circumcision school, the penalty was death. And any boy who died either because he bled to death or if he died because he told a woman and then was found and was beaten to death, no one was allowed to weep for him, including his mother. Letter K. During circumcision, if a woman sees the leaves that the boys use, she must be killed. At this time, everyone sings obscene songs, even the mothers. Do you know what the word obscene means? Things you can't talk about. They're all forced to sing songs about sexuality and fornication. And he records in here some of the songs that he heard. He went to this school. That's where he got the pictures from. He, he describes in here, I went there and just took pictures and recorded what happened to the boys. And then he spoke song affluently. He recorded the songs that the women would sing. Talking about rape and fornication. Letter L. There are six main trials of circumcision school. Blows, cold, thirst, unsavory food, punishment, death. On the slightest pretext, they are severely beaten by the shepherds. At the order of the men of the Sungi. Every day they must sit round the elephant, a large stone, and holding a stick in their hands, lunge at it as if to pierce it. For more than an hour they sing the following words. Elephant, keep still, the black cow kicks. It kicks against the jug of the baboon. Think about that and compare that. Compare that with come ye sinners. Which one is more fitting for the honor and dignity of a man? Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. Or this, elephant keeps still, the black cow kicks. It kicks against the jug of the baboon. Letter M. Some boys were even killed at initiation school for telling their mothers what had happened to them. Letter N. The boys must learn a special dance with very high jumps. Can you think of another institution that uses very high jumps in its worship? Where did they get it from? Did did they get it from the Bible? Does the book of Acts tell us We all need to be jumping very high. He describes it in this book. The boys must learn a special dance with very high jumps. And when they return, they must strike their mother 
grandmother or sister if they show any affection. Can you imagine that? It's required. It was wrong. The boys would have been beaten if they did not hit their mother. Letter O. After circumcision school, there is the Gangisa practice where boys and girls commonly mate. He has pages on Gangisa. It's so dirty that I don't even want to read it. Gangisa was the practice where after you've come out of initiation school, you find a girlfriend or as many girlfriends as you can find. One of the people who, who is his informant, a man named Mboza. Mboza said, a married woman may never have another man. But until she's married, she can go with as many boys as she wants. That's the common practice. Letter P. A boy who has no such flirt, no shigango, is laughed at as a coward. A girl who refuses to accept such advances is accused of being malformed. When they become Christians, natives readily accept our standard of morality, but cases of fornication are very frequent amongst converts. So much so that this has been rightly called the African sin. Years ago, a man that we trained to be a pastor. Two weeks after we chose him to be a pastor, after we had known him for years. He met a girl on a taxi. And within an hour, he had committed fornication with a girl that he'd never seen before. I had no category... I I can't even comprehend that. But that's not the only instance. Another person that I baptized at Elam came to me saying, Pastor, help me. With what? I went to play soccer last week. Okay, that's good. You need help with soccer? There was a bunch of girls cheering as we played. When I was done, I talked to a girl and then I went home. She followed me. And so I committed fornication. Have you ever met her before? No. Where does she live? An hour and a half away. On on the same day, you don't even know who she is. And I've seen that kind of thing happen multiple times. Letter Q. As an old man, he is less respected. This is now at the end of the life of a man. He is less respected and often only a burden, unwillingly supported, The children laugh at him. People of mature age show scarcely more consideration for old people than do the young ones. As may be seen, the eve of life is very sad for the poor Tsonga. Sometimes the boys will steal the food they were supposed to give him. Often they will sit and repeat, Vaishanisa, referring to their relatives. That is, old people, Junod describes in this book. You'll notice the part I just read is not a quote. That last, the last line, starting with the word sometimes, that's outside the quote. Those are my words summarizing a long part of his book. He describes going and listening to old men sitting there talking, saying, Ah, Vaishanisa, Vaishanisa. He says they will repeat this over and over. If you ask them different questions, How's your life? How are things going, Kukwana? 
Oh, Vaishanisa, Vaishanisa. They punish us, they persecute us. They make life difficult for us. He describes boys, they're given food by the mother. Go give this to Kokwana. And the boys will take it and eat it all and then come back and say, we gave it to him. Letter R, at death, the grave is dug so as to have a side room where he can sleep as well as the main area where he can, quote, live. Let me show you this picture of this grave. The section on death in this book is fascinating. So the graves are dug down and there's a side room dug on on the side. Now, I've seen something similar to this even in Elam. Because when they dig the grave down, they put bricks all around the inside. And what do they wrap the the coffin in? A new blanket. Have you seen that? And they'll put things that the man liked on that to go down into the hole. Have you seen that? It's part of what they did in the past. He describes this at length. This was an ancient custom because they believed as soon as the burial was done, they'll begin to pray to him as a god. It's listed on here. Look at uh, letter... Letter U. A month after the burial, this is the first occasion on which the deceased is treated as a god and prayed to. Letter V. Never more than at the graveside did I pity my poor black brethren. And I can say that. When I go to funerals, it is hopeless. And I feel great pity. White funerals are totally different because so few people come. And I almost never see weeping at a white funeral. Few people come. In fact, most of the funerals I've been to for white people have been in the church of someone that I knew that person was born again. They had a true testimony and lived their life for many years as a godly man. I I preached at one funeral in America for a man who was not a believer. There were 10 people there. 10. You can't even imagine a funeral with 10 people, can you? It would be a terrible insult. This man had 10 people at his funeral. I stood up and preached. I never met him before. The people who were there didn't know him very well. He had no wife, no kids. And the funeral ended. No one really cried. We, they paid some money to have him buried. No one went to the graveside. But here it's different because 300 or 400 or 500 people will come for a funeral. And when they do, there is much hopelessness. Have you seen people crying and wailing in a funeral? Now, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, we do not weep as those who have no hope. But when I have been at funerals in the village, they are weeping just like those who have no hope. Because they don't have hope. He describes the weeping and the wailing. Why wouldn't you cry like that? You have no hope. Life of a woman. Much of what applies to a life of a man applies to the life of a woman. But let's see some things that are unique. Letter A. A Tsonga girl wrote this essay in 1897 describing what it is like to be a woman in Tsonga culture. 
I quote a portion at the end of the essay as the girl reaches old age. So, do you see the word when? And it starts with a quotation mark. That's the girl's words translated from Tsonga in 1897 into English by this Swiss man. The girl's whole essay is in the book. It's fascinating. This is not his view. This is a 15-year-old girl saying, if, you, if you're a woman in, in Tsonga culture, this is what it's like. She describes the life from beginning to the end. It's about two pages long if you want to read it. But let me just pull one quote that the girl wrote. This is not a white man. This is what she wrote when she, was, she could write on any topic in school. And she chose, I want to write what it's like to be a woman. Here's what she said. Letter A, the word when. When she is quite old, they feed her. Her grandchildren are sent to bring her food. When they are hungry, they stop on the way and eat it themselves. On their return, they say, we have indeed given it to her. She describes in that essay, it is terrible to be a Tsonga woman. Now, I re- okay, that's just one person. I recognize this. But remember what Mboza already said about the life of a Tsonga man. And I already know because he told us in the introduction, whatever he hears from Mboza, he goes and checks with Tobani. And whatever he hears from Tobani, he goes and he says, well, how would you say the life of a man is? And then get the story. And he... He compiles all their stories, and wherever they agree, that's what goes in the book. So he doesn't just take one example. Letter B, for many years, even until 1910, the Tsongas had a custom of pointing the teeth. The incisors, that's these two right here. They would be sharpened with rocks on the girls until she looked like a dog. You know dogs, and you pull their lips back, now those sharp teeth. Ladies, would you like to have that? Until 1910, they did that. It was terribly painful. And it was ugly. We cannot say this. We cannot say this. No, it was beautiful to them. It's just not beautiful to you because your culture is different. No, it's ugly to deform a little girl. It's ugly. It's painful. It's visible. It caused her teeth to rot. He puts that in the book. Many girls who had that performed ended up having their teeth rot out on the sides. Let her see. Girls are not allowed to. Only girls. Men can eat this. Girls are not allowed to eat pork, hair, antelope, chicken legs, or ox hoofs. If they eat chicken legs, they're afraid that, that will, the, the chicken legs will go into their heart and they will begin to run from house to house looking for more husbands. If they eat ox hoofs, it's a straight quote. If they eat ox hooves, they're afraid that they will be stubborn like an ox. Letter D, let me say that though a Tsonga woman cannot imagine life without marriage, she does not enter the new state with any enthusiasm. Her parents have warned her that she will be ill-treated, accused of witchcraft and of adultery, etc. Her sisters bewail her fate on her wedding day in song. Her sisters sing about We've lost our sister now. 
I have talked to African women who are afraid to get married because of those exact things. They're afraid of being ill-treated. One woman said to me, it's different for you because you're not afraid that your daughter will be beaten. But I am afraid that the man I take will pretend to be a Christian to make you happy, pastor, but then he'll be a, a wicked man. These are unbiblical ways of thinking. Maybe you're afraid because there's so few who are Christians. But that's, that's why we need to understand the, the old, useless ways that were given to us by our forefathers. So that we can completely throw them aside and take the new ways of the Bible. Letter E, as a rule, however, the married people have very little intimacy with each other. He explains this at length. Men will take trips and they'll come home and they will not go to greet their wives. When a man comes home from a trip, he'll go to see his friend and he'll tell his friend about it. The woman will see him walking through the village and so she'll just go and cook and his food will be waiting for him when he comes home at night. Letter F, a wife may be divorced if she does not produce children. In order to determine whether the problem lies with the man or the woman, a small fragment belonging to each is brought to a certain spider's hole. When the spider takes one of the two pieces inside his hole, he has shown who the guilty party is. That sound like a wise way to do it? Look at the next one. Letter G. A pregnant woman must not drink water when standing up. She must kneel down. Otherwise, the water would fall violently on the head of the child and hurt it. You can't drink. Do, do you laugh at this or do you cry at this? It would be wrong for us to say black people are inferior. That would be completely wrong. It would be right for us to say those customs and cultural practices are inferior. It does not help to kneel while you drink water. It does not help to avoid chicken feet or chicken legs if you're a 16-year-old girl. These are inferior cultural practices. Letter H. If a woman loses her baby, the husband will often come to believe that the wife was a witch who ate her own young with her magical power. He's going to describe later on in the courts system. He says over 90% of the cases that came through the Spelunkin court in a year were divorce and Lobola cases. A man took a wife and then he said, she's supposed to be cooking for me or cleaning for me. And she's not doing it. I want all of my hose back and she can go away because they would pay Lobola with hose. He said 90% of the court cases, he went to the, the courts and asked, give me all of the, all the statistics. 90% of the court cases were divorce and Lobola. And the man can divorce the wife if he says, you can't give me a baby. And if she says, it's your fault, she can get beaten. Letter I, heathen men are often hard to their wives. They refuse to give them money to buy clothing. On the other hand, the women are by no means sweet, obedient creatures. Therefore, quarreling often takes place. 
When she thinks she is persecuted, the wife runs home. This is her great weapon. Letter J, old and decrepit women are despised. As long as she has an atom of vigor, a Tsonga woman goes to her field and tills it. Have you ever seen an old Kokwana go out and till even when she's 75? I've seen it. I thought, oh, Kokwana, go rest. And then I see some boys, some 16, 17-year-old boys sitting under a tree. She's out working. No, she should be resting. And they should be sweating. Family life, letter A. The earliest Lobola payments that Tsongas could remember were mats and baskets. With the arrival of the Europeans, they began to pay Lobola with iron rings, then brass rings, then beads, and then with hoes. At the time that he wrote the book, ten hoes was the price for a good girl. The chiefs for a while fixed the Lobola price so that people would not charge too much. And Tsongas decided to give discounts to Indians or whites if they would marry their daughters because they said if they marry an Indian or a white they'll at least have enough food to eat. Letter C. In Lobola, a woman becomes the collective property of the clan. Two clans have been brought together and the woman is the bond between them. The early missionaries were firmly opposed to Lobola because it made a woman property. And as property, even her children could be taken from her. Letter E. These complicated relations due to the Lobola poison the whole of native life. But the Lobola question fills the African village with hatred and bitterness. Now I'm quoting Junod here. The Milanju. Can you see Milandu in there? Take out the J and put in the Z. Milanzu. Milanju, the debts. Milanju comes from what verb? Lanza. To follow. And this etymology is very instructive. A husband whose wife has gone away must landa his wife or landa his money. He's trying to get that back that he had lost. His whole family will help him so that he can recover what he lost. At least three quarters of the cases are Lobola cases and the other 15%, I said it was 90%, the other 15 are divorce cases. So that 90% of the cases in the year that he checked the, the statistics were on marriage, breakups, and complications. I am not saying that Lobola is a sin, but I am saying that all of the early missionaries thought that it was a terrible sin. And the reason they thought it was a sin, there was about five reasons, but the main reason is they said it makes the woman property. It does not honor the woman. Now, if someone wants to argue that it does honor the woman, they can make that case. But they should at least deal with that and be prepared to say, okay, Lobola is good because it does honor the woman in this way. I wish Papanika were here tonight. We could have a good discussion about that. Uh, I'm not saying that Lobola is completely bad, but he is saying Lobola is completely bad. And he's saying that all Christians thought it was completely bad. And he said if you want to be a Christian, you had to forsake Lobola. <laughs> I'm not saying that. He is. That's pretty strong. 
Letter F, polygamy is uniformly practiced all through the tribe. Domestic quarreling prevails in the villages of polygamists. There is a special term, bukwele, to describe the fighting between wives. Let me see if I can find that. Oh, it's on the next page. Yeah, we'll get there just now. Letter G, medicine was sometimes made for children and adults from the waste of female baboons. He describes the process if you'd like to read more about it. Letter H. Let us retain all that is pleasing and moral in Tsonga culture. Respect for elders. The sense of the family unit. The habit of mutual help. The readiness to share food with others. And he, sa- he talks about this. Where else does he mention it here? Did I put it somewhere else? Yeah, look at number five, letter C. Number five, letter C. Everybody who has lived with Tsongas has admired their wonderful readiness to share any food they may have with those present. Even children are much superior in this respect to white children. I agree. I have seen poor people share cold drink and food with me. I have seen kids who don't eat much at home give my children snacks to eat. And my children have food to eat. And I have seen my children with food not want to give it. And I said, you kids need to learn from that. Look at that. They're being kind and generous. There are marks of common grace. I've made a list. This isn't in the book. But I've made a list of ways that Tsonga culture shows the grace of God. Have you ever pondered that Africans handle difficulties with so much more fortitude. They expect difficulties. Their lives are hard and they're accustomed to a hard life. But many whites, many Americans, will have a great difficulty with hard times. I've also seen Africans have a great love for children. An African baby will run to every other African adult. My baby will go to two adults. That's superior. I like that. There are a number of marks of grace in Tsonga culture. And he puts his finger on some here. Number five, let's look at the village and the clan. Tsongas like to build their villages among trees to protect from wind and to serve for relieving themselves since they had not by 1912 learned to make toilets. He mentions this because he says this is an unusual mark. Here You see the village described there. And he says near to the gates. Do you see the forest around all the sides? He said, it was common in 1912 for the people to begin at the closest edges. That would be right there to relieve themselves. And then the next time they came out, then people would have to go further in. So that eventually after a year, you had waste the entire way around and the scent. He said, because no one wants to walk far and they had not learned yet to dig a hole to capture the waste and cover it so that it would not escape, so that the the scent and the disease would not escape. That's just one more example of what 1 Peter already told us. Useless way of life received from our forefathers. Letter B, the villages are surrounded by a small fence made of sticks to keep out witches. You see the fence there? He has pictures of the fence in the book. The fence was not strong enough 
to keep out any people, but it was strong enough, they thought, to keep out the witches. He says, this will, these fences will keep the witches away from us, but not any people. I'm looking through here to find a picture of the fences, and I'm not finding one. But you get the idea there. And then notice this, between uh, huts number five and three, on the top left, you see those up there? Top left in the picture right there, those two huts. That was the place of the Bukwele, the place where the wives could fight. Because what's going to happen when you have four women in one village? By the way, this is a village. This is a muti. This imutwanti is wakale. Masikula maiti muti. Here, il muti. Muti droba. Muti nzinza. This imutwakale. They would have a cluster of huts, starting with the man's at the top, and then his favorite wife on the right, and then other wives spaced out, and then his uncles and his children would have huts around. And when the wives wanted to fight, they weren't allowed to fight by his hut, but if they went one hut over, between those two huts, there was a place for them to fight. It was so common that they actually had a tsonga custom for it. Let's make a place, let's have a name for it. For the bukwele. Letter D, women especially are very busy. He describes for three pages the work that women do. They cook, clean, gather, water, plow. They also have to beat the corn into mugayo. Dineo or Vanessa, have you ever done that? He has pictures in here of these women doing this. Would you rather live in 2020 or would you rather live in 1912? 2020 or 1912? There's another one in here, isn't there? There is another one. I don't know where all the pictures are. He says it is very common to see the women having sweat streaming down their faces for either plowing or carrying water or harvesting or pounding the maize into mugayo. Letter E, as for the men, their life is far, far from being as active as that of the women. The duties which fall on them and which they are willing to perform only require of them isolated efforts from time to time. Men build the huts, tend the cattle, hunt, fish, pay visits, and discuss public affairs. Letter F. On the whole, men have but little to do. We can fairly estimate, estimate at three months the time required for the work which they have to do for the village and for the community. The remaining months are devoted to pastimes and pleasure. And he has a whole section in here on the games of the adults. And guess what? There is not one game 
for the women. The women's only pastime that he refers to is kutheva. At night, when they are done cooking and working, they can sit around the fire and gossip about each other or the men. But there's a section of, right here, games for adults. The, and the games for adults are only for men. And the first one is what? Men's favorite pastime in South Africa is what? Drinking beer. It takes nine days to brew beer. Men will commonly plan their brewing so that they'll brew at one house for nine days, take a week off, and then go to another man's house for nine days. And there are pictures here. While there's pictures of the women stamping the mealies, here's pictures of the men at a drinking party or chewing hemp, smoking hemp. They have elaborate games for spitting hemp juice. Look at this. There's a description here. He describes they'll sit for hours at this spitting game. They chew the hemp and then they'll spit. And they have to spit in an order. And you get points. And if you don't spit in the right order, the men will get angry and hit you. He drew a diagram to help us understand the way you've got to spit. He says they'll spend hours on this. But of course you know this one. What's the, what's the big pastime? This, he calls it tsuba. We call it mancala. The stones in the holes. Have you seen them put the stones in the holes? What do you call that? Uh, what is it? Tsoro. Tsoro. He calls it tsuba. What is it today? What is the name today? What is it? Now, I'm not, saying it's, I'm not saying it's wrong to spit hemp, and I'm not saying it's wrong to play tsuba, tsoro, maravarava. What is it? Chuba. I'm not saying it's wrong to do those things. I am saying men should be dedicated to work. Why is it that the women's lives were hard? What did the men do? God said, by your sweat, Adam, you will eat your bread. The Tsonga said, by her sweat, I will eat my bread. He says it repeatedly in here. The woman does the plowing and the harvesting, and all of the produce is the man's to distribute, and he always gets the first plate. Letter six, a number six, chief and court. The chief forms the center of national life. It is in him that the clan becomes conscious of its unity. Without him, it loses its bearings. It has lost its head. Royalty in the mind of the native is a venerable and sacred institution. Respect for the chief and obedience to his commands are universal. Conscious of his position, the chief does his best to maintain and to increase his prestige. The idea which is at the bottom of the fear is that the chief is a magical being. Now, I just want to pause and ask you this. Do we see that today? In either politics or in the church. We look to pastors as if they're big men and chiefs. And just now when we get to this volume, we're going to see how that comes out in the religion. 
It's the religion that brought those ideas. So if we just throw away the religion, we can fix those 